Last week we spent some time reflecting on Thanksgiving, and though the Advent season is uh, being thrust upon us, uh, mostly by commercial interests, it seemed wise to linger a little longer and maybe come back and finish more form- formally what we started uh, talking about last week. I'm not going to belabor uh, the trend towards revisionist history that we talked about last week. Um, it's being presented under the title these days of truth-giving as an alternative to thanksgiving. It's almost laughable, though, because truth has very little, if anything, to do with the agenda of those who are trying to push for what they call truth-giving. And uh, they're counting on ignorance and laziness to allow their efforts to gain traction. And that's why I say it's almost laughable, because actually it makes me want to cry. Those two weaknesses, ignorance and laziness, have really been the source of all sorts of errors over the eons. And in the end, bitter sorrows for mankind. And where they prevail, no other result can be safely expected. In Psalm 1, or rather Proverbs 1 and verse 22, we read, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? In chapter 26 of Proverbs, in verse 16, goes on to say, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And that's what we see today. People in ignorance who are too lazy to find out the truth, but who believe themselves to be wiser than anybody else. There's even a danger for the church from these two failings. The Lord, speaking through his prophet Jeremiah, laments at one point and says this. This is Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 22. He says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no um, understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. Now, hopefully, you'll recall some of the things we revealed last Sunday afternoon about the root and the rise of the Plymouth Colony and its results. They were discussed by William Bradford about 10 years after he and the others landed at Cape Cod. And what Bradford does is he rolls back the clock and takes us all the way back to the earliest days of the Reformation, and he reminds his readers of the persecutions mounted by the powerful and superstitious church at Rome and the state against the reformers and uh, the biblical Christian faith. And we observed with Bradford how this strategy didn't prevail. It, was, it came with great force upon the church, but it didn't prevail. Instead, the blood of the martyrs watered the truth, as the saying goes, and the, the Reformation took root all over Europe and throughout the, the British Isles. Um, we then discussed briefly how Satan turned to yet another of his ancient tactics. And I think it's worth hearing Bradford again on this matter. He said that Satan then began another kind of war and went more closely to work, not only to pummel it, that is the church, but even to ruin and destroy the kingdom of Christ. 
by more secret and subtle means, um, by uh, kindling the flames of contention and show, sowing the seeds of discord and bitter enmity amongst the professors and seeming reformers themselves. They stirred up and agitated the church itself, even the reformed church. For when he could not prevail by the former means against the principal doctrines of faith, he bent his force against the holy discipline and outward regiment of the kingdom of Christ, by which he, those holy doctrines should be conserved and true piety maintained amongst the saints and the people of God. So as a result, the true Christian faith was disgraced because of this agitation within the church itself. And sincere believers were grieved, and eventually they became afflicted and persecuted and exiled and imprisoned, all in the name of Christ. And this discord and brutality among the brethren produced, as you might expect, an increase in atheism and profaneness uh, that and it's an adversity that impacted all of England. Um, seeing this situation caused people to become disillusioned. Um, the greatest persecutors of the pilgrims were actually fellow believers within the Anglican Church who were bitter against them. And um, when uh, they tried to make one attempt to leave, the men had been carrying uh, the their wives and the supplies out to the ship and uh, the um, soldiers marched in and they arrested all of the wives that were left on shore and confiscated everything that they had and put them in prison. And then the men were alone on board the ship because they had been taking some of the stuff out there and so they were separated from their families. They didn't dare come ashore because there were worse things awaiting them. And so the families were divided. And that was being done in the name of Christ uh, by um, the church at the time in the state. That situation, however, was just a part of the story, Bradford says. And he tells us that you need to go deeper to discover the root and the cause of what established at, uh, what God established at Plymouth. And when you do, Bradford says, this is what you find. And he was speaking to his fellow pilgrims, and he writes this. Do you not see the fruits of your labors, O all you servants of the Lord, that have suffered for his truth and have been faithful witnesses of the same? And you little handful amongst the rest, the least among the thousands of Israel, you have not only had a seed time, but many of you have seen the joyful harvest. Should you not then rejoice, yea, and again rejoice, and say, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power be to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. You might recognize that we just read those verses a few moments ago that Bradford closes this opening paragraph with. When you look and see what's been done and how, how it's been done, shouldn't all the glory and shouldn't all the joy that comes from that glory rest in God and what he's done? Because it's true that power is with him. He says, who has done it? 
who even he, who even he that sits on the white horse who is called faithful and true and judges and fights righteously referencing verse 11 of revelation 19 whose garments are dipped in blood and whose name was called the word of god now he's referencing verse 13 for he shall rule them with a rod of iron for it is he that treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of god almighty and he has upon his name or upon his garment and upon his thigh a name written the king of kings and the lord of lords and what bradford is saying is this colony and the all the things that have flown that have flowed out of it are a result of the fact that it was established and preserved by the king of kings and the lord of lords so here we see the root and the cause it was the will it was the providence it was the grace it was the power of god it amuses me at times to hear these poor people described as though they were super men and women that no one and nothing could resist when you hear about the view that people have of colonization and how terrible the pilgrims were you get the impression that they must have been supermen and superwomen because they came and um, nothing could resist their power. Uh, to hear the complaints against them, you think that they swept in and by the sheer force of their superpowers, subdued everything before them so that they would become a terror to all about them and spread disease and make slaves of others and become rich on the backs and labors of others. They just came in with this great power and this, this what has to be superpower. And even though they were outnumbered, even though they were starving to death, even though they were confessedly weak in themselves, they swept everything before them and established themselves and, and dominated over everybody else. Only someone who knows nothing about what really happened and really has no interest in discovering what really took place could possibly have such a convoluted and confused view of the reality. Bradford and the others with him were so thankful for the way that the Lord worked in them, increasing their faith and strengthening their resolve how he worked around them by an ever-gracious providence, and how he worked through them to establish a place for the exercise of liberty. Because without that work of his, they would have simply withered away and died under the conditions in which they found themselves. They were there in the, they, they landed in the middle of winter with no homes, no shelters, no place to hide, no place to warm themselves. They came in a highly vulnerable situation, and things didn't get better. Half of them, approximately, died in that first winter. That doesn't sound like a mighty, triumphant army marching on their enemies. It sounds like a people barely holding on. Now, Thanksgiving Day has come and gone, and we're back to dealing with 
the realities that are a part of everyday life. And it seems that for every bit of what we might call good news, there's at least one counter note, or perhaps I should say counter punch, if not more. It can become disheartening and lead to a depressed spirit, especially when it's coupled with the other challenges that we face as individuals in our lives and among our family members and friends, losses, illnesses, misunderstandings, disappointments, mistakes, and failures. The pilgrims are waiting for the arrival of another ship because they're looking for supplies. And the other ship comes without many supplies, but with a whole group of new colonists who land on the shores and say, okay, here we are, feed us. That wasn't good news for them. (laughs) That wasn't a hopeful thing. They were looking at it and saying, oh, yes, this will be great. Here comes a ship. Now we'll have supplies. And they came on land starving and saying, would you please feed us? And they didn't have enough to feed themselves. And yet they found the means to care for them. But it was like a counterpunch to the good news. And it's the same thing for us. We hear something that encourages us and makes us think, well, maybe things are going to get a little bit better. And then there's a counterpunch and, and things seem to be right where they were, if not worse. With all of this, it can't be denied, especially for us, that we're in the midst of a rather profound cultural shift. There are rumblings and fissures cracking open, much like we see physically taking place in Iceland at the present. They're all indicators of a violent eruption of one sort or another. And for the believer, things like this suggest a careful course of action. We We need to step back and heed the advice of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 23 through 27, we read this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's here, beloved, in the assembly of the saints, and that's why Hebrews says that there shouldn't be the neglecting of the house of God and the gathering together, the the assembly of God's people, because it's here that the glory and grace of God stand out on display. It stands out on display in both the testimony of believers, of, of those who are God's people, and in the proclamation of the word itself. When we feel like circumstances will overwhelm us, we can look around when we come to the house of God and see our fellow saints who have been tried as we are being tried. 
And we can see the Spirit of God strengthening their faith or hear the testimony of God having strengthened their faith, the testimony of his having delivered them in their trials and wonderfully answering their prayers. And in all of that, the glory of God is on view and we are encouraged by it. We're strengthened in our own faith by those things. And here in the Word of God, This glory that we are to fix our attention upon is perfectly set forth. It's here that we get the understanding that allows us really to adjust the lens through which we see the wide world and which we view all its history, all of its current events and all the future that's about to unfold. And this is sort of what Bradford was saying about Plymouth. To understand it, you need to look to God and his word because there you can find the secret of its origins, the reason for its present state and the future result that would come from it all. We trace it back and we see it as one of the founding moments in the establishment of our free land. And here we enjoy all of this freedom, all of this liberty. Well, it goes back to that occasion. Well, how did this come to us? What was the... what? what took place to get us to the place where we're able to enjoy all these things. We adjust the lens and we see what it is. It was the grace of God. And that's what Bradford says. Look back. This is the work of God's grace in our nation. Now, turning to Revelation 19 and disregarding for a moment its eschatological significance, and that's not to say that that's not important, But I just want to focus for a moment on the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we look at that first verse, Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So the first thing we just see just in general here is that this testimony of praise, this joyful shout of hallelujah, comes as a result of the fact that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because those things are in his hands, it's a reason for his people to praise his name. Now, as we mentioned last week, there's not an angel or a saint in heaven, beloved, who is stressing out or who is anxious about the future. Not one. I said last week, there's nobody wringing their hands up there saying, I wonder how all this is going to turn out. It just isn't so. Because they have one great sight in view. And that's the reality expressed here. John looks, the heavens are before him, and he hears this voice, like a great multitude, saying this, Hallelujah, praise God. Why? Because salvation and glory and honor belong to him. And so the natural response of that reality is to praise him no matter what is going on elsewhere. There's a temptation to view statements like this as just piling up words, merely for the purpose of effect. 
as if the Holy Spirit were saying, I really want to convey my glory, so let me see how many things I can string together to make an impression on you. And, of course, we know better. God is not reduced to such things in order to impress the hearts and minds of men. If we think that God has to multiply words in order to impress us, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of the reality of things. God can impress you with one word. He can bring you to your knees with no words. That's who he is, is God. He doesn't need to use language in order to impress us. So when we see language like this, we understand that it's not just for the purpose of impressing us, multiplying words so that we'll just be stunned by it all, but it's to communicate a reality to us. What is said here is said with purpose and with design. And it begins with, as we highlighted last week, the shout of hallelujah. I went back and watched that on YouTube. It was really great. You could hear it really loud, even on YouTube. And this is a recurring theme in this chapter. You see it in verses 3 through 6. Look at them there. Once more they cried out. Try that again. Once more they cried out. There we go. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. And from the throne came a voice saying, All "All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, it's interesting that the Jews say that the book of Psalms consists of ten sorts of songs. But hallelujah is the greatest of them. Because it comprehends the name Jehovah and praise in one word. Ties them together in one word. God is praise. God is the one to be praised. All praise is in him. And so they say that's the most beautiful of all the songs that we see in Psalms because it brings those things and knits them together. This word in this form only appears in the Psalms and in this 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. It doesn't appear anywhere else. And it's nevertheless been adopted as what uh, William Hendrickson calls a liturgical exclamation of joy, even though it has such limited use. doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament but in this chapter, Revelation 19. And it appear, appears only in a limited form in the Psalms. It's also worth noting that the first time it appears in Scripture It is in response to the destruction of the wicked, which is what Revelation 19 is all about, right? What we just read, it's all about God's triumph over the wicked. And the first time it appears in the Bible is in Psalm 104 and verse 35. May sinners be consumed from the earth, 
and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Or praise the Lord, it's translated, but it's the word, hallelujah. So there it is. This is a prayer. Let it happen. Revelation 19 is the fulfillment of it. And that's where the word first appears in Scripture. And it's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It seems very likely that this verse in the Psalms is being referenced here in Revelation because this chapter is all about the Lord's triumph over his enemies and yours. Now, the good habit of praising God lightens the heart of God's people. And this relates to the reasons given uh, why he is to be praised. Look first at the end of the verse. He's to be praised because all these things belong to him. By her hallelujah, the church of the Lord, amid the great tribulations which she had to suffer from the world, had stirred herself up to faith and confidence. It was the shield which she held up against despair. And now with it, the heavenly church celebrates the victory over one of the particular phrases of the worldly power, says Hingstenberg. Our God is, says Trapp, the true proprietary of all blessings and all triumphs over evil. Now, the word belong, if you look at it, is added to help us understand more clearly the intention of this expression. Eden draws me uh, pictures just about every Sunday, and she brings them to me after church. And if I held her picture up from last week and asked, to whom does this belong? She would say, of course, to me. That would be her response because it would be her picture. It's her idea. It was her work. And she produced it. And no one else could legitimately lay claim to it because it was all hers. All her work, all her idea in that picture. And that's, in a sense, exactly what is being contended here by the angels and saints in heaven. He is to be praised because deliverance or salvation are his. Glory is his. Honor is his. And power is his. And it really doesn't belong to anyone else in the way that it belongs to him and is his. William Hendrickson says here, God planned salvation and chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, according to Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 and verse 11. When the human race plunged into sin, God stood ready to redeem his people. God saves body and soul of all those whom the Lamb redeems throughout the world, anywhere and anytime. What he's saying there is, anybody who's saved is saved by Christ. Anytime, any place, anywhere, anyone who is redeemed has been redeemed by Christ. It's his doing. It's his election. It's his sacrifice. It's his calling that makes it possible. He receives all the praise and glory for the redemptive work the Lamb has accomplished. It's his work. 
And when you hold up our salvation, no one else can lay claim to it. When we said, who did this? Who did this for me? Who did this for you? There's one answer, God and God alone. And nobody else can say, well, I had a part in it. No, it's his work, his power, his glory, his honor alone. He is the one who brings us deliverance. And it shouldn't go to anyone else, especially the believer favored by God in the work of redemption. That's the worst thing of all when people say, well, you know, God voted one way for me and Satan voted the other way and I cast the deciding vote. I did it myself. Scripture doesn't speak of anything like that. It's not a glory shared by you and the Lord. It's his. All deliverance over sin and death is his doing and he deserves the glory for it. We look out over the loss of those we know and love in Christ, and we are able, because of Christ, to say, Hallelujah. Praise God. And why? Because they've been delivered by him. One of the most precious moments in my life was in the moment when they had determined that the Lord had taken Beth to himself, and the whole family immediately broke out in the doxology. How can we do that? Because of him. It's his doing. That's why even in that moment of sorrow, we could all find peace and joy and praise to the Lord. How? Because he is the deliverer. That's how. We look around at the power and the threat of evil and wickedness of men and women, and we say, praise God. Why? Because he's delivered the world and is elect from the ruin that they design. The worst they can do is send us to glory. The worst they can do is send us home to the Lord. He's delivered us. He's delivered the world and is elect from the ruin that they design. He will judge Satan, his minions, and all of those who have hated him and his word, despising his love and his grace. We can look at our own failing health and our own impending home going and say, hallelujah. And why? Because he's delivered us from sin and death and the judgment and brought life and immortality to light for us. It's all his doing. It's all his work, and all the praise belongs to him alone. In Psalm 18, verse 16 through 19, the psalmist David says this, He sent from above, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. This is the one who used a little band of despised believers to help create a great Christian nation. They were not alone, to be sure, but they were used to show the way. It was their courage their willingness to sacrifice all for the sake of Christ, which showed others what God could do. 
and others followed, buoyed by their example. And what of us? Are we going to tremble in the shadows of little men marching about and making noise? Or are we going to give thanks and rejoice in our king, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords? In Isaiah 51, 12 through 13, it says, I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die? and of the Son of Man, which shall be made as grass. And forget the Lord your Maker, that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? Who would not wish to see Satan destroyed and Christ enthroned? Satan's rule brought down and Christ extending and enlarging. Satan's power destroyed and Christ's crown flourishing. The joyful anticipation shall be fulfilled. We may have long to wait for it, but it shall come. It's no dream. God's faithfulness stands pledged for it. A Christ already crowned is the sure herald of its fulfillment, said James Gould. Psalm 3, in verses 6 through 8, it says this, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. We were watching a little documentary about uh, Ireland the other night, and they were talking about the castles. There are literally, literally th- tens of thousands of castles on that little island. And they were talking about what it meant when you built a castle. And they said what it meant was, here I am, and I intend to stay. Here I am, and I intend to stay. The Lord is our fortress. He is here, and he intends to stay, and we can put our trust and confidence in him for now and every day. We don't need to be afraid of the world. We need to worship our God, to whom belongs power and glory and honor forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the heritage that we have as a people, and we pray, Lord, that we would not neglect the lessons that come from it. Lessons that call on us to be faithful, to put our trust in you, and Lord, to worship you and not fear the world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to determine how we can, like those pilgrim forefathers, how we can be used by you for the preaching, teaching, and dissemination of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that when things are set before us, we'll not turn from them, we'll not be afraid, but Lord, we'll be bold and thorough and careful and above all, trusting in you. We thank you, Lord, that you are indeed our deliverer, our fortress. We thank you, Lord, that you are here and you are here to stay. And we pray, Lord, that our confidence and trust being in you may be emboldened 
for the glory of your kingdom, for the name of Jesus Christ. For it's in his great name we pray. Amen.